Hello and welcome to the Wonders of Wellbeing podcast with Amy. really argue with this science, right? It's been Mm. around for a long time. Mm. And so when teachers really come to workshops and have the opportunity to unpack it in the context of what does that mean for me as a teacher? What does that mean for my students? That's really important work. And Mm. then they start to view restorative practice through the lens of humanity and just figure out different ways of being together and doing that well. This evening, I have the pleasure of chatting with Christy Elliott, the founder and director of Restorative Pathways, an Australian, Melbourne-based business supporting schools to create flourishing cultures using restorative approaches to relationship and conflict management, as well as the science of wellbeing. Christy is an experienced international consultant and teacher who has worked for over two decades with schools in Australia and Asia, striving to make a positive difference in their school communities. She provides coaching and tailored professional development in restorative practice and positive psychology. Christy runs restorative peer mediation training for students, teaches innovative circle technologies for the enhancement of relationships, and provides in-class coaching for educators. In addition, she supports schools in policy and document writing and works with school leaders and educators to understand the crucial role of psychological safety in teams. Welcome to the podcast, Christy, and thank you so much for jumping on for a chat. Hello, it's so great to be with you. I was just saying to Christy, I all of a sudden on lots of my social media outlets is all this restorative practice links coming up and posts coming up. And I think the algorithms have (laughs) picked up that I was speaking to Christy tonight. So I've got so many questions about it and I'm really interested in it. So thanks so much for jumping on. I guess we could start with like prior to us recording, you mentioned that You personally sought a sense of belonging in your childhood in what you deemed unhealthy ways, which led you to the work that you're doing now. And I thought that that might be a really good place for us to start. Would you be able to elaborate on that for us? Yeah, sure. So this comes up a little bit in the work that I do with schools as well, because I like to bring myself to my work. And I think, you know, there's always a reason we end up doing the things that we do. So I, you know, as somebody who works with schools, I didn't enjoy school. As a student myself, I didn't find that to be a great time. I have some fond memories, but I have lots of memories that, you know, I'd rather not remember, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And ironically, I haven't left school. So it's certainly my experiences have led me to where I am now so that I can support schools to create better environments and conditions for students who, like me, didn't experience a sense of belonging at school. And that was one of the things that I found hardest about school was I was on the fringes of lots of friendship groups, but I didn't view myself as somebody who was really a part of a big friendship circle. So I found that hard all through primary school and high school. And I guess I went looking for that sense of belonging in unhealthy ways in the end, because I couldn't find it by being myself and and find it in a positive way. So I did find myself, you know, in in spots of trouble and drama and experimenting with, I guess, what you might call high-risk behaviour. And thankfully, I just had good people around me, like my family, who never gave up and, and pushed me to stay on track and supported me to do that. And a couple of good teachers along the way as well that inspired me to to do better and to seek out what I wanted to do, which was actually, you know, become a teacher that was somebody who could help kids in schools. 
Yeah. Oh, how inspiring is that? And like, as you said, I mean, if that's something that, you know, when you do go to a professional development, you like to connect to that because that is part of your story. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things about this podcast is hearing those things. I often ask, I think I actually ask every host the same kind of thing, like what's led them to that path? Because you're right. You're often, and it doesn't mean that it was, it's not always, I find some people's are not always personal journeys they've actually just observed or been part of someone else's Mm. journey maybe that's also inspired them it's not always just about their own personal journey but most of the time it is and how inspiring Mm. it is that it's inspired you to go out Mm. and and try and help kids so that they're not in that vulnerable space as you felt or that sense of belonging you know being really important for them as a consultant of well-being education I mean We talk about the pandemic a lot and I'm always fascinated to see what different people observe. You know, like there are so many schools in, obviously in Melbourne, there's so many schools in Australia, there's so many schools in the world. And I'm always really fascinated just to see what people from outside of a school setting, so, you know, going into support, but on the outside really, you know, what gaps maybe they're finding schools are are in post-pandemic, whether that be positive gains or whether that be gaps that because of the pandemic where we're needing to sort of fill. Have you got sort of an opinion or thought on that? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I noticed most coming back into schools face-to-face after after an extensive mm. period of remote learning here in Melbourne was the sense of overwhelm for uh, overwhelm and exhaustion of our teachers and the ripple effect that that had then on the students and probably the community, but I saw the relationship changes between students and teachers during that time. Teachers were finding it more difficult to manage student stress and the behaviours that can come from that when we are feeling overwhelmed or, or have a heightened stress response system as the pandemic can create for us. So when I walked into schools, I saw students with um, heightened stress response systems and teachers with heightened stress response systems and then an escalation of the behaviour that can come from that. So that's one of the things that I noticed first was really the work needed to start with our staff, our teaching staff and our leadership team so that they could regulate themselves and come back to a sense of of balance and equilibrium uh, first so that they might support students to do that. So that took a little bit of time, I think, and I think we're still working on that, to be honest. Mm, Yeah. Do you think that the schools were, I mean, leaders and teachers aware? Like, were they seeking your support because they were aware or was that just something that you happened to be going in and you sort of picked up and said to them, hey, I think maybe this is probably a starting point? Yeah, good question. I think a little bit of both. More often, I will be sought out because they're struggling with students and student behaviour that presents. And then it's only when we sort of have some conversations with them around their observations and the ways in which they've been responding to those tricky behaviours that it that it's really highlighted that we need to focus on them a little bit more as well. Mm, yeah. yeah. And do the schools generally have a like a wellbeing framework or a program that they're working with alongside or is there restorative practices that you come in, does that end up being sort of their wellbeing focus for that time? Yeah, look, again, that's a great question. And so from my point of view, 
and my experience, restorative practice is a wellbeing strategy in schools, Mm. but often they're seen as two separate entities. So restorative practice is seen as a means to address either relationships or relationship breakdown and conflict with students predominantly. Some of our schools are starting to experience that shift in thinking and realise that it's got to start with them and, and the relationships between colleagues and their processes for conflict too. And then they'll sort of have this stream of well-being and think about student well-being and the kinds of activities or interventions or support measures that need to be put in place for students. So part of my role is to try and work with staff and leadership in particular to figure out the alignment of those Mm -hmm. two constructs in their school and recognise where restorative practice actually meets the needs for well-being for their staff, students and community as well. Yeah. Okay. The neuroscientific, uh, the neuroscientific and the psychological foundations from what obviously I can see on your website and all the research that I have done are kind of like those like crucial, like restorative approaches. Could you, I guess, explain these and for us? Yeah. Um, where to start? <laughs> yeah. Probably, I know it's quite complicated. We probably have a whole podcast just about that question, <laughs> yeah. really. I think I like to stress the importance of it because I guess the trajectory of restorative practice in schools is really interesting to watch. So in the early 90s, the way that it was introduced to schools was as a means to address high-level harm. And the pioneers in that field were looking to run our most formal restorative response, which is restorative conferencing or meetings. And it was about bullying or incidents of Mm. bullying. And so because we started right at that pointy end, if you like, it was almost back to front in terms of us thinking what restorative practice can offer schools. So it makes sense that we've really had this focus on student behaviour and restorative practice being a means to an end and and sort of looking at that behaviour piece. But more so in the last 10 years or so, off the back of intense research in neuroscience, we've really picked up on this idea that that is foundational to what we do in terms of restorative practice, the science of relationships and the fundamental need for humans to connect and belong. And that is where our well-being really is situated and the rest is almost peripheral. So that's the real key piece there. So things like attachment theory, for example, where we look at the first five years of child development, that impacts how students interact with each other. In fact, that impacts how teachers interact with each other, their attachment styles, and plays a key role in their ability to do conflict well or not. And so understanding those theories that are really at the core of what it is to be human is so important to restorative practice because it means that we see it as a way of responding to humans and their behaviour versus, I guess, fixing misbehaviour in kids, Mm. if you like. And the other big one that we look at is around the neuroscience of emotions and in particular shame, the physiology that comes with that and how that motivates us to either interact or withdraw from social interaction. And we can we can find ourselves in all sorts of trouble when we don't manage the experience of shame well. We can lash out, we can, you know, things like school refusal can be the result of experiencing learning shame or social shame at school. So 
these are all the things that if we have this in our kit bag of knowledge in terms of, you know, you, you can't really argue with this science, right? It's been mm. around for a long time. Mm. And so when teachers really come to workshops and have the opportunity to unpack it in the context of what does that mean for me as a teacher? What does that mean for my students? That's really important work. And mm. then they start to view restorative practice through the lens of humanity and yeah. just figure out different ways of being together and doing that well. Yeah. Do they find that it helps with helping families, like if families involved, like the parent section of schools involved as well? Like is it kind of schools that are doing restorative practices or engaging you to consult with doing like whole school approach? To support parents That's certainly our, our recommendation and that can take a little bit of time, especially if schools are really making a big shift away mm. from, I suppose, traditional or more punitive systems that are in place. And so I think it's fair that they take a little bit more time to engage the community in that way and bring them on board slowly because you want the teaching staff and the teacher aides to feel really confident and comfortable in themselves, changing mm. their mindset and practices around that. But certainly we, we run parent workshops and it's really important to get them on board early because that connection between home and school is such yeah. an important piece. And I guess one of the big shifts that I get to see in my work is when I am running a restorative meeting or conference at that pointing end, the parents are involved and the community of carers are involved for those students as well, or teachers. And it's then where they get to see the true power and the transformation that can happen in a restorative encounter. And that's when you'll get families full on supportive and, and talking to other parents and families about it as well and bringing them on board together. So there's something to be said for, you know, building up slowly at the ground level, but also coming at it at the high end and having an experience of, of a restorative encounter. Yeah, because it would be, I mean, obviously it would benefit teachers and teachers, you know, their relationship together, obviously the teacher and the student, yeah. but, and the student and their parents, but also the teachers and the parents, you know, there yes. are times where there are relationships that don't start off on a positive foot or something ends up happening yeah. and, you know, how powerful that can be because the impact that has on the student for the rest of the year is mm. really significant. So I was just wondering how often schools do sort of take it on as like a whole school approach and have parents sort of part of that that process and understanding so that, you know, I guess the language is the same, you know, that they're hearing at school and at home. Part of the restorative pathways is the evidence-based positive psychology tools that target mm. obviously the teacher well-being side of things. I guess my question with this is like, what positive impacts do you see when you run a staff professional development day, whether it be light bulb moments on the day or feedback that you get once they're back in the classroom when it comes to their, their well-being in a school? And that's the cool part, right? Where they get to tell you yeah. what, what that has meant for them and the transformation yeah. that they're kind of working with as well. So I think one of the biggest things is I get a lot of emails about affirmation. The things that they were already doing has been affirmed by what the research has said that I've presented in the workshop and things like that. So, you know, they knew they were on the right track, but they weren't necessarily getting that feedback themselves from yeah. other sources. So to get that on the day was really powerful for them to keep going, keep going with yeah. what they were doing. So that's really nice. And I think the other thing is just, I guess, a literacy or a language component, the ability to have consistency of communication across the school around these concepts and permission almost to talk about it, talk about what's working, what's not. Mm -hmm. I like to use the words, things like play a lot. So I'll say play with these concepts. 
give it a shot, see how it lands, see how it feels. Don't stop talking about it. Even if it doesn't work for you, don't stop talking about it. See how it's working for other people and kind of take it from there. But I think sometimes in schools, we're very concerned about student outcomes and and meeting those requirements that are placed on teachers around student outcomes and, and performance that we can forget to have a play with some things and see where Mm. it lands. We're so worried about showing impact all the time that it can be very difficult for us to sit in that place of uncertainty, of let's just see what happens, kind of throw it out there. So the ability to talk about it, give them the language for it, permission to play, these are the things that I get feedback about that teachers are picking up, picking up what I'm putting down, if you like. Awesome, Christy. That's so good. And I think, I mean, as a teacher, you... I guess we're also in that mindset that you feel like there's so many things that you need to do and there's so many boxes that you need to tick that the thought that you've got to trial something that might not work and what you then sacrifice in that time is also something I think that plays on our mind. Like you just want to do something that you know that's going to work because there's so many more other things that you've got to do and I think maybe that mentality can be, you know, a bit of a barrier as well. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, gosh, restorative practices, yes, for the teacher wellbeing and yes, for the relationships and things, but I'm also feeling like it would be really helpful when it comes to the processes that schools have in Mm. behaviour management, in the way that they do their routines, like all this kind of like systematic things as well that are sort of under this big umbrella of a school, that that would be really powerful for them as well. (laughs) Yeah, spot on. So I present four pillars of restorative practice in schools and thinking about a broad spectrum of what it looks like. So the first pillar is actually systems and environment. So looking at alignment of procedure and policy, not just for students, but for staff and community, Mm. uh, things like co-constructed norms, behaviour expectations and things like that. So we can see that other frameworks might fit into there really nicely that schools are working with, like PBL, Positive Behaviour for Learning, for example. And then we, the next pillar we talk about is the knowledge, mindset and skills. So that's where we bring in the science and looking at specific restorative skills. So things around empathic listening and self-compassion and the words and dialogue that we might use. The third pillar is circle pedagogy. So the way in which we teach, not just the content, but using community-based learning technologies, which is naturally restorative for people as well. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth pillar is conflict navigation. So how do we do conflict well? What can it look Mm -hmm. like? What are the processes and skills that are required there? And this is where we bring in things like forgiveness, which is actually a huge part of wellbeing for people as well. So there is a breadth to restorative practice that I think schools are only just starting to realise now Mm -hmm. in the last few years of, of where this could go for them yeah powerful stuff I thought from previous years and things I've heard I think the US do the US use restorative practices quite a bit I think in their school system yeah there are yeah there are certainly pockets of really great restorative practice in the US so Mm. Minnesota would be one that Mm. I'd be looking to into so they work in terms of school districts right so Minnesota Oakland also is another one and there are some pockets in Pennsylvania which is where the International Institute for Restorative Practice lives so yeah there are certainly some really nice systems and Mm. models to look to there as well also just across the ditch New Zealand the New Zealand Ministry for Education have some wonderful work around this as well okay yeah gosh New Zealand has come up quite a bit actually as well as a country that from an education point of view is 
doing very well in, in pockets for sure. Christy, how do schools measure the impact that restorative pathways and practices would have in relation to their wellbeing? Measurement is really interesting to me in schools and it's one that we need to be careful with. What are we measuring and what are we going to do with what we measure? And what are the implications if we do measure it? So one of the biggest changes that we see in schools working restoratively is, of course, around relationships and positive culture and communication. How do you measure that, though? It's a, you know, we, we there are schools that already measure parts of that in terms of their standard surveys, opinion surveys that go out to students and families and staff and questions around culture and how people get along with others and whether they feel safe and a sense of belonging. So there are bits and pieces of it that can be measured with with tools that they're already using. I'm reluctant to overlay any other formal measures on schools per se, because they're already gathering so much data Mm. and that you can kind of pull from that essentially as well. But I do think The biggest question that I would encourage schools to answer really before they look to any kind of measurement around this space is why? Why do you want to measure in the first place? What is it that you're going to do with that information? How will that information be helpful to you? And then you can start to wander through, well, if this is what we need, what are the things that we need to measure? How will we ask that? Who needs to be a part of that measurement as well? Yeah, and I love that response. So do you find that schools have answers for you and know why it is that they want to measure or do you then find that actually they don't know and therefore they kind of are then in a little bit of a okay yeah what when they need to really sit down and think about it yeah i think a bit of both so when they're encouraged to take a look at the kinds of measurement tools that they're already using and the data they can draw from that that would relate to well-being and restorative practice that's a nice eye opener for them as well because then they can start to draw from the surveys that they already have and the tools that they're already using and then they can start to see where the gaps might be or where the opportunities might be to create some more structured measurement tools that really suit their context because context is super important in all of this. From school to school, I might show the same slides, but the conversation doesn't look the same and implementation doesn't look the same and the starting point is not the same. So yeah, what you measure and when you measure even is is really important. And one of the tricky things that has come about is because restorative practice was seen to be a behaviour management tool in the early days, schools have been collecting data around, so disciplinary data, so they might collect the number of detentions or suspensions or expulsions and, and those kinds of things or conversations that are being had. That's only one piece of the puzzle and, and it doesn't necessarily tell you too much about whether we're being restorative or not mm. because some schools will sit in that space where detention is a restorative measure if we can bring people together and have a restorative chat about it even though it's still called detention restorative things are taking place Mm. there so that data isn't always giving us the information that's good that we need yeah 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 for sure and I I think as you said context matters what why it is that they want it but also when you want to start measuring right like when is the right time to start to then measure the impact. And the main reason I ask that is because when I do read lots of well-being in school, not step-by-step, but like a well-being in school approach to to it is always about evidence-based, how you're going to measure that this has been successful because, you know, I think they link it to academic side of things where it is all assessed and numbers matter. And I think the mindset in in the well-being space, 
I'm not sure it's slowly even changing. I think it's trickling, you know, like maybe the restorative practices is is coming in and helping that. But I do know that a lot of the wellbeing programs are measuring it and schools want yeah. to know that they can measure it and they almost just mm. want which is obviously where restorative practices is different, right? They, the other wellbeing, schools just want to tick a box to say, yeah, our mm. wellbeing has got to be important. Let's bring something in and prove that we're doing wellbeing well. Let's tick that box. Let's throw yeah. the data out there that says, hey, wow, look how far we've come. But actually in the day-to-day practice, it's not really happening. There's a danger to that as well in that wellbeing doesn't just increase. It no. ebbs and flows. Relationships don't just go, you know, from here to positive, 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 super positive, Yeah, you know, relationships ebb and flow as well. And a life without conflict is a life without growth. So Mm -hmm. this is the danger in what do you measure? Do you measure a school that doesn't have conflict? Well, there's no growth there. We're talking about people who aren't interacting then or who are stagnant. With conflict comes growth, but we just have to do conflict navigation well. So, you know, maybe it's about assessing the skills of conflict navigation as opposed to the outcome of everybody lives happily ever after, right? Mm. Gosh, this is awesome. And this is just such a different, like in such a positive way, it's just such a different hat to be wearing when we're reflecting on wellbeing in a school. And Mm. it's amazing that I can see the power that it's, it is, I think it's the word practice, right? I know that sounds like, well, yeah, Amy, it is restorative practices, but it is, it is a practice. It's something that kind of underpins everything else that you do it, rather than it be, you know, taught in lessons and it's succinct and it's got sort of like a topic of the week and, you know, okay, we've just looked at empathy and now we're looking at friendship. It's actually the crux of how the day runs, but not just for how the kids manage it, but how the staff relationships are and leadership and the parents. And there's just so much to it, Christy, that is really, really impressive <laughs> and has just got what sounds like just a lot of power in schools and not just post, I mean, yes, post pandemic where relationships and belonging and things were a real, really hard for, I think a lot and a lot of, a lot of teachers to come back in with a sense of belonging and the the kids and the leadership team and the parents and super powerful, but even whether there was a pandemic or not, such a super powerful practice to have. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your insight. I think that it is I have heard of it so much, but I also really appreciate being able to sit down and just pull it apart a little bit more with you. And I reckon that we could do five hours on this and still not cover it all, as you said, and we could just have a whole one on the psychological foundations of it and still have so much more to talk about. But I really appreciate sort of the nutshell version. And thank you so much for sharing the positive impacts that you see in a school setting with what you do and the encouragement that you give staff to just play around and have a go and sort of give them that that space to be able to feel like they can do that and that's okay. Thank you for everything that you have done and that you continue to do to create a better future for our lifelong learners. Oh, thank you, Amy. What a pleasure. No, it's been a thrill to speak to you. And every time I get to speak my passion and my truth, it just, it's a boost for my well-being. So thank you. Yeah, good. Amazing. Christy, if people would like to connect with you online or they want to learn more or what's the best um, way to do that? Yeah, so they can email me directly, christy at restorativepathways.com.au. Also on the socials, you can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. So reach out. I'm always up for a chat. Relationships is my business, but also my passion. (laughs) Amazing. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Amy. 